0: corporate unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business they share their dreams their experiences and what they would never give up i'm so glad to have judith glazer here with me in new york it's so great to be here thank you so much welcome to my podcast judith Judith Glazer is an organizational anthropologist, and she's one of the world's most pioneering and innovative change agents and executive coaches and specialists on conversational intelligence. She is a best-selling business author of seven books, including her bestseller, Conversational Intelligence. And through the application of neuroscience to business challenges, Judith shows companies how to elevate levels of engagement collaboration and also innovation to positively impact the bottom line. She's also the founder and CEO of Benchmark Communications and the chairman of the Creating We Institute. You say you are an
1: organizational anthropologist. So what does that mean? It's a fascinating title that I actually gave myself when I was realizing that I had very broad interests across many disciplines. So I loved putting together things about general semantics, which is about language. Putting that together with what I'm learning about the brain or about chemistry. I never just went for one area. I seem to want to integrate across disciplines. And so I actually went in my university, Temple University, and I went to them and said, I'd like to create a program called Interdisciplinary Studies. And they said, well, we don't have that. I said, no, I know, and I'll help you create it. (laughs) So I was the first interdisciplinary student at Temple. And now they have it as a regular program. So organizational anthropologist looks at the whole organization and all the subsets of what it means how people talk to each other how the culture is built and so forth and then puts that with anthropology which is let's look at the history of how things are evolving mm-hmm. and my eye wanted to see where the future was going and anthropology helped me look at that world and where we are with a different eye of what's next for us mm-hmm. and it explained so much so I was turned that all into a body of work called conversational intelligence, realizing that as I learned about epigenetics and how the brain works and DNA works, I studied deep in different sciences, Mm. that conversations actually turn on and off genes in our bodies when we talk and turn on and off pathways. So when we see a parent disciplining a child, that parent is laying down a pathway for that child to either feel good about themselves or not feel good And while that might go in the unconscious part of the brain, which it does, after a while, it's still driving that child's success or lack of success at work. So when I see a leader standing with their team of people and yelling at people, I say in my head, "Mm, interesting family situation playing out here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What are the three things that people typically don't
1: uh, understand or know about our brain and how it works? How our brain works. So most people think that if we're in a room together in a meeting, that we're in the same meeting together. We're not. We're in our heads. And every person focuses on different things depending on what they're tracking about the dynamics of their team, as an example, so that they can either prove that what they already believe is right or they can not, most people don't go for the surprise side or be surprised that things could be better or different and see ideas that are innovative for how to move the team forward. Most of us are sitting in a meeting saying, oh, I already know that. Oh, no, they're wrong. I know something different and deciding to step up or not. So we have multiple realities in our heads and we're testing what we think is reality. Other people do also. We walk out of a meeting and we talk about the meeting and someone says, wait a minute, were we in the same meeting? You took away that we were doing this and I took away that. So our brain is active at many levels all the time, processing for what I know, what I need to know, how I influence you to get what I want, and then how to create together. So that birthed my three levels of conversation. What has been the biggest impact from sharing all your work in the world? I've had the most amazing opportunity of traveling around the world. I was invited to Dubai and China and South America and and so on. And the biggest surprise was that wherever I took this work, and no matter what levels of people were in the audience, I was getting head shakes of, yes, that makes sense, that makes sense, that helped me understand this and that. An example of how significant for me this was, I was in Dubai, and I was the keynote speaker for an audience of 700 people, men and women, and I was told the front row has the most important people in Dubai. So if somebody from the front row raises their hand, you stop the meeting, you focus on their question, answer it, and then you can go on. (laughs) And I thought, uh (laughs) uh-oh, am I gonna be in trouble? And as I was speaking, the hand raised from the front row, And it was when I used the word power. And in Dubai, it was suggesting that uh, in my story that I was sharing, sometimes people, especially senior leaders who people are afraid of, it's as though the leader has their head under the ground. They don't see everything because people are too afraid to share. And I talked about it that way. And here's one of the top people hearing that possibly he could be that person. And he had to stop to really understand if he wanted to believe that or not or argue that and so he said okay now i got it move on and later during the session when i went down on the floor people said let's go back to that power issue again so clearly you know i was learning how the cultures were receiving this work and how to make sure that it matched to every culture that i was talking with
0: and when you were in china what kind of uh, special impressions Did you get
1: there? It was fascinating. I was invited with 14 consultants to go, and they had us meet with uh, people from Tsinghua University, which is like the Harvard of China. And uh, we were there for two weeks talking about our work. So each of us had to give presentations about what we were bringing, because they wanted to bring our work into China. And I found out that I was selected as the number one content provider that they thought that that was the best that they had seen. Wow. Uh, So that was pretty exciting. That was pretty exciting. How did they find out about you? They made contact with different universities. And so I've spoken at quite a few universities and that gave them, my name was repeated a couple times. And so that's how they found (laughs) out.
0: But Judith, going back to you, what would you say is your your passion?
1: I have a dream. Now I know we've heard that before, right? Martin Luther King. Yeah, but we love that. (laughs) That's okay. My dream, was consistent. Uh, When I was little, I used to dream that I was flying in a room and I see myself up at the ceiling trying to lift it, lift it so that I wasn't in a box. And so one of my dreams was to be able to do something that circled the world, that it wasn't in a small box or even a double-sized box, but I wanted to do something that could wrap around the world and make better things happen so that countries would work together better and people would raise their children better, and I started to think about where I wanted to have an impact. The role model I had was that my dad became an ambassador to the United States, Mm -hmm. and so he went to 21 countries, and I got to go to Peru and Mexico, and I spoke Spanish then, so that was my introduction to, oh, global, what am I learning about how I'm like these people or not like these people? Then I live with a family in, in Spain, so I had three examples of a language that was not mine that I could connect to and I was falling in love with what I was learning about what opens up people and what closes them down and how much if you focus on someone and fall in love with I always say I have to work with people I fall in love with. And then then <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a very good rule. Yeah. yeah and it makes it so good for all of us and people are so open and I study what does love mean between partners. So my work became I wanted to be able to bring something to the world that would help people educate their children differently so that we could figure out how to work together and innovate, educate leaders in government. And I'm now working with leaders in government and I'm now working with all the sectors in different ways through people that I'm teaching my work to. So I now I have almost over 3,500 people that have either been certified or worked with me through the work that I do in conversational intelligence. And I wanna have a a band of people, like Robin Hood.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in that sense, the more the better, the more they they can spread. uh, Exactly. So in that sense, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And in terms of transformational points, uh, what are those for you that have influenced you the most?
1: I've been a writer since I was 11, I think. I used to make books back then and draw them and illustrate them. They weren't great, but it was my need to, again, put things in writing and in pictures that were hard to explain. That's what writing does. It helps you take the complex Mm -hmm. and and make sense of it. And so for me, that was a big deal. I wanted to push myself to become good at that as a subtext to everything I do, because being able to communicate again around the world, and now I see coming true that I have books that are in 11 or 12 languages, so that's happening. Again, I was on this path early, Somebody said I'm very singularly focused. I've had this mission, I've tasted it, and now I, I want to help it. So I, have to, I had to develop all the skill sets that would help me communicate and connect with others. And that's when the neuroscience started to become my biggest pursuit, because it was an area that people weren't yet making sense of what's going on in here, not just out here. Mm. And, and so, when was that? I would say in my university work, I found professors. My, my fellowship was with a woman named Doreen Stegg, and she had two PhDs in philosophy and psychology, and she got me on a path of looking at things that nobody else had looked at. I can give you an example of probably the biggest research that I did that was 10 years long that completely changed my mind about what human beings are all about. Dr. Stegg's husband was at GE, and he built what was called a talking typewriter. That was a big typewriter that was programmed with five levels to teach children how to read, not through books, but by programming their stories on the computer and their pictures as the illustrations on the computer. So, boy, that really matched with my bookmaking and illustrations and writings. It was like a perfect. So, the thesis was what happens if instead of giving them a book to read that somebody else wrote, what if we asked them to create their own books and then read them? What would happen to their brain? And so instead of having pushing stories at them, we pulled stories out of them. This is really pivotal in my work, because all school was about teaching. Teachers tell you what is important. You learn the knowledge, you get tested, you get good A's, your oxytocin is flying, you feel good about yourself, you're friendly with everybody, you get D's, now you're retreating or getting angry. So all of this is around grades. So we try to create an environment where... We took away the typical school. By the way, when you learn knowledge, you store it here in a vault of knowledge. When you learn to engage and grow and innovate, you're using a different part of the brain. The prefrontal cortex heart more so is the orchestrator of the relationships in the other parts. Does that make sense? That our brain is designed for different levels of intellectual and spiritual enlightenment. Anyway, so with the children, we pulled their stories out. We pulled their pictures out and then we programmed the computer so for every child they had a story and pictures that they had drawn. We gave them 31 half hour sessions, that's it, no more. And at the end, it turned out, here's the big drum roll, all the children learn how to read through their stories in 31 half hour sessions. More than that, we tested their IQ again. Most of the kids had a 15 point increase in IQ, never heard of before. That we shifted the energy by pulling rather than pushing. And it shifted how the brain was able to make sense of all of this, bringing in more capability than what we thought the child, by testing, would have had. Followed them for 10 years, and these kids all went to college. Didn't matter what their income was, income level, they all went to college. Their brains were changed forever. And that research is up on the web, if you look up Doreen Steig, That influenced me to challenge conventional wisdom everywhere I went. It gave me the confidence. That a lot of what we say your brain stops growing at 19. Not true. We now have actually two schools of thought arguing each other in the press as we speak. Mm-hmm. One trying to prove that it, it wasn't the case and the one that's winning out is that our brain continues to grow as long as we feed it what we need to in order to keep growth mm-hmm. happening. And what is that that we should think about feeding
0: our brain with in order to continue?
1: It's the same thing that we learned in that research. Do more pulling in your conversations leaders in many cases have been taught to know things knowledge about the company knowledge about the future planning everything and we've learned that that puts a halt on people's growth capability in companies leaders need to be thinking of how do i pull ideas an example you know this burberry the beautiful clothing right well, I coached the CEO from Burberry. Her name is Angela Arnst. I coached her through Donna Karen and Liz Claiborne and Bendel's and all the companies that she worked with to get to where she's now at Apple, with sixty-five thousand people reporting to her. And uh, she said, when she got to Burberry, I'm going to tap into the millennials. We want to grow our company to be relevant to the, that generation. So I'm going to see how we put their minds to use. And she picked a group of millennials, hired them specifically to be this thinking group. And she said, I'm going to give you a challenge to how do we grow our company faster than we ever have before. And you don't have to pay for it. We're going to have the money to pay for it. You have to come up with the ideas. And she chartered them to do it. And they came up with things that she never, ever, ever would have thought of, one being having the runway shows and having Apple phones visualize what's going on so it could become live streamed into computers and people who aren't at the show could see what's on the runway and they matched what's on the runway with what's in the store so people could see it and buy it and that was never done before usually runway has fancy things that only special people buy so they're not maximizing the revenue and Angela was a break the rules person and she came up with this idea they sold out so much and all of a sudden their stock went from under a billion to multi-billions now. And so the brains of the millennial are doing something different than what the brains of the previous generations are doing. Mm.
0: And in general, I mean, the whole education that we have, everybody, I think, seems to agree that it needs to be innovated and changed and so on, not because the teachers are bad or anything. It's just that it's an industrial system. Yeah. and, And we are not Made like that. We are all individuals, and, and somehow we need to find a way to express that uh, individuality. And as you as you say, also to pull out who we are and what we so want.
1: You beautifully said something that I'm on the board of two organizations, and one of them is was part of Outward Bound. And I helped them with a lawyer pull away from Outward Bound so they could be their own company. Mm -hmm. And they're called EL Education. Mm -hmm. And over the years that I've been on the board, they have now worked with over 160 to 180 schools Mm -hmm. in the United States, of which they were selected for the core curriculum, to bring the core curriculum to all these schools, and, Mm -hmm. and now have been selected with another state, I forget which one it is, Detroit, And that's not where, there's problems in Detroit with kids and school and everything. So they've been put into places where there's challenged students and education and they lift up these kids. What they do that's different is that the teachers don't teach what's here in this part of the brain, the neocortex. They teach the prefrontal cortex and heart by teaching two things important. Number one, they anchor every student in what their identity is, how to build their character. So they learn about character and values and how to treat others how to work with we, not just build I. It's the we behaviors, right? And all of that is completely changing the brains of these kids. Everybody goes on to college. I've met some of these students and they're, so it's it's number one, building character. Number two, looking at the world and saying, what project do I wanna launch in the world? This is first graders that can change the world and make it better. So they do projects. So between the two things, they're rapidly moving them towards a different type of adulthood. That will be more successful
0: fascinating and so important work is there anything in terms of the transformational points you want to add or about my transformation <laughs> your
1: transformation yeah. uh, my transformation I will say that early along I got a lot of rejections for my books and for my ideas because people said you can't mix the whole thing I was is mixing different disciplines and you can't mix them so I had well over a hundred rejections for books that have gotten published by people who believed in me. And so my transformation was about, what's the mindset that I need to have to hang in? I believe so much in this and, and see miracles happening everywhere. And I know Stanford University had called me to help with a review a book, and I did, and I didn't think it was good enough for Stanford, and I built a good relationship with them. And so they said, well, why don't you write a book and we'll publish it. And I gave them the proposal and they said well we love it Psych today love it customers loved it but we got one rejection and that person's weight is heavy and i said well who, who rejected me and she said i can't tell the person's name but he's a neuroscientist and he said she's not a neuroscientist she can't write a book like that and so i was right about to sign on the dotted line and they didn't accept it but i got another offer that gave me two books at, at the first run and then you know others after that so It worked out fine, but that's the thing. She's not good enough. She's not, you know, who we are or whatever it is that is that judgment call. Yet I continue to jump over that. So my transformation is learning how to fly over, like I put myself on a horse and fly over the barriers in order. I must have a a huge, strong commitment to this that is so important that I'm not gonna stop. I have an eighth book that's in progress right now describing what's going on with me personally and how that fits into my work. And it turns out that I was first diagnosed with cancer on September 11th, 2001, the same time the World Trade Center was being attacked. And so that marks obviously in our history and then in my personal history. And my mother died in 10 years when I was young from so many cancers, seven cancers. And so I was now getting concerned that I had a cancer gene or something. And so turns out that in 2015, I was re-diagnosed with breast cancer and had a double mastectomy that never healed and led to me going, put myself in the hospital and doctors discovered, lo and behold, that I had stage four pancreatic cancer on top of this. And nobody in my family had had that before. And so I went through, I'm now in year two and a half. And at the time that I was told after the doctors discovered it, that three things could happen. I had two weeks to live, two months to live or two years to live. And I've passed the two year mark now. I'm traveling around the world, I'm doing wonderful things. I have doctors that have given me amazing treatment and I am, while the cancer is still there, they're finding that they're quelling some of it. And even though I I had a brain tumor two and a half months ago, again, they took out the tumor. I had other little tumors, they had a zap with radiation, but I keep moving on. I'm not done with my passion in life. I have a vision, I have a mission. This is not going to stop me, it's going to inform me of how I have to have better conversations to reduce the stress so that my immune system can heal and become strong enough to move the cancer away, to take it, put it to sleep basically. Mm -hmm. And so that's the next phase is finding that immunotherapy that's gonna help me and help the world. Like when I visited Dubai, help the world, not just me, be different and be nicer. And I talk to myself all the time. You know, I make them my friends I go to to healers and all sorts of people that give me confidence that they're angels. I mean, that could be spiritual for people, but for me, I see the blue angels that are here, and I call them in to help, and they talk with me to myself. And part of this is how do we master the stress in our life? How do we become change agents? How do we use conversations all of these different ways It's like new medicine that's been in every culture. Back to my anthropology. Every culture has medicine people that do alchemy. And they were special people who were reserved to treat the highest level in that society first to keep them alive and then move down to others maybe. And I started to study alchemists and people that were discovering things that are being pulled through from 6,000 years ago from almost when we were Neolithic. That's part of the story. It's the integration of our culture to bring it
0: to a higher level Mm. wonderful and also i'm I'm just reflecting on the fact that we have so much built in to our thinking and our system all over the world respect for what we call science of the modern science Mm -hmm. and that is doing great work of course but still there must be so much more to get from what was the truth back four five thousand six thousand years ago as well and how come we cannot marry more (laughs) the two worlds, right? And get
1: the best of both and have equal respect for both. Yes, I think there's more conversation now going on about herbal therapies and acids. Now that we understand more of the chemistry, because we have machines and things that can read what's important and what's necessary. So Mm -hmm. I've been told something about a vitamin C therapy that they might try on me, which is harmless. But in a certain strength, it turns on, it zaps the cells to do something different. Like they've been asleep, so we want to wake them up.
0: So um, I really wish you all the best. And, and I'm sure also given, as you say, this pulling passion and, and, uh, and what you are here for will give you the right strength and energy.
1: Yep, yep. I am on a mission, I have to say. Sometimes I'm so singularly focused that it drives everybody crazy. But until I finish moving and putting the pieces together of the puzzle that I'm here to do, to work on, and I'm thinking about a constantly, I wake up in the middle of the night, I have a pad next to my bed, <laughs> and things like that. So in my, my next book, I will integrate the connection between conversations and immune system in a deeper way. The neuroscience will become more relevant and more visible, and I think that's going to help. When is the book coming out, you think? We haven't sold it yet, so my agent is waiting for all the chapters. We now have titles for them, and content, and... In a couple of weeks it'll be finished, so then we'll I'll let you know. <laughs> Great. But going back to businesses
0: and organizations for that matter, what kind of long-term solutions or long-term formula do you believe in?
1: I have a belief that when people start to get into conflict or silos, these are the words that they use in business, or my boss is tough on me, is to step back for a minute and in your mind pretend that you are now a movie maker and you've watched the scene of people fighting and now you're going to change the storyline in that story and you can reframe, meaning take it from one person to bigger frames, yeah, refocus and go in on somebody's thoughts almost as they're expressing something, or redirect and completely jump to another subject and maybe link it to what you're doing. These are three of what we call conversational essentials about how people can make it through the world in a healthier way. Don't get stuck in their point of view is what the bottom line is. You can hold it inside. Leave space now. Create the space is a big word that we use for a different type of conversation where you can listen to people that you're having challenges with, not as an enemy, but as someone who is having challenges with something and like you they have dreams and they're seeing conflict or problems around them that are the obstacles in their journey and you may be one of those and so know that Find out what's going on for them. What's their aspiration? How can you help them in some way? There is now neuroscience research that says if we find people in companies and we bond with them, we can learn to mirror what's going on and learn more about what their energy means. There's a place in the brain, the prefrontal cortex, where mirror neurons live. And so think about how do you connect rather than disconnect? How do you step under their reality rather than fight for your reality? Maybe, and this is what I believe in conversational intelligence, there's what we call level three conversations where you calm down your stress and fear of connecting at work. You stop thinking that everybody's the enemy and that you're going to be squelched and thrown out. Whatever your fantasies are, your movies are, put them in a closet for a minute just to see a new way of seeing that person. And people have told us that they have people that they fought with in business for so many years and by working on their own brain, to cleanse it again and start over and make a new movie, take two, take three, take four, that they have been able to heal problems in companies they never thought they could. They didn't know it was possible and found that some of these people have become the best partners and co-creators for the new way that this company could be in the future.
0: Interesting. If we you know, dream a little bit and say that you have absolutely all kinds of doors open to you, wherever you want to go, everybody's going to welcome you and want to help. And you have all kinds of resources available. If that is the case, what would you then innovate or change right now?
1: I would love, and I thought about that a lot in my lifetime. I think that we have something, and conversational intelligence is a methodology that I believe if we start children off when they're young, they are much more intuitive than we give them credit for. Mm. I remember when I'd say to my, my parents would say to me, don't do as I do, do as I say, yeah. right? The, yeah, split, sure. the split reality, we've all heard that. Now we have the elephant in the room, then we have the moose in the room, which means that there are things we can't talk about. I'd like to get to a time when that is old folklore about how it was way back then, remember. Mm. But now we can talk to each other about what's really on our mind because when we do that honestly and openly, even if a leader has to fire uh, an employee, or a spouse, is, the couple is breaking up, whatever it is, learning to do that becomes a healthier healing process than what we see. People shoot each you know, There are more shootings in the last year in the United States than in the history of the United States in a year. I didn't know that. Why is that? Why? Because, and I'll be very honest, and maybe it's political, but our uh, president, Donald Trump, is an aggressive person who lets fighting uh, show in his tweets and everything that he does. And so he's elevated people that had anger, and now they say, oh my god, I have a way to release that. I'll just shoot them, like he's doing. He's basically blasting people and making them crumble. Well, people then who are just at the edge of being angry at the world, like the guys in California and LA and wherever this is happening, Florida, it's releasing that aggressiveness and making it okay. And so I want to teach from the very early stage how to, young children, how to have a voice. How to have a voice to express what's on their mind so that they, like in the expeditionary learning schools, that EL education, they learn core values about who they are, what their character is, how to build someone who cares about the world. If you don't teach people and you just give them lots of knowledge up here, it doesn't necessarily turn into a commitment for life. And I want us to, think differently about what education means and give conversational intelligence a chance to live in our educational systems, in our hospital systems, in our government and I've worked with all of these beside corporations you know I've worked in Very Big Baptist Health, which is a, one of the world's largest health they keep buying up more and more hospitals. I spend days with them and thousands of people in the room talking about how to bring conversational intelligence into the healthcare world so my dream would be, and what I hope I live 100 years to be able to accomplish, is going around to each one of those industry sectors and talk about. I'm going to one of the highest medical journals in the world, like the top medical journal. I'm going in a couple weeks to talk with that group of people. I want people to understand this and introduce it in their realm of influence. So that pretty soon we shift from guns to peace. Maybe that's a big dream, but It's part of my biggest dream.
0: If you could give one piece of advice to leaders that I know that you work with a lot and you interact with
1: a lot, what would that be? It's fascinating because when we talk about the word leader, leader means leading in a lot of ways and that connotes teaching, being ahead of the game, making sure that everybody knows what you know, mentoring people, and there's a lot of good to that. But often what happens is we get caught up in the chemistry behind owning the stage and being the superstar and being a hero and a lot of when leaders fall into that, their intention is good, but the impact sometimes closes down people and takes the air out of the room for others to shine. And the biggest thing that people need to learn as a leader is to try to notice that you might be hooked by power and instead think about how to create a power with environment, not a power over environment. And when they do that, the power with then brings out the talents of everybody in the room. You get to know who can do what. People have come to your company for a reason. They can contribute their ideas in a better way and allow people to make mistakes as they're learning because all of this is new. The world is in rapid change. And so it's sitting back and realizing that you got to the top because you were good at things. Now your job as leader, leading is to create that space for others to be able to follow and not just follow but create for you and for the company. So notice. The difference when you start doing that, how much more exciting your culture is, how much more energy people have to come to work, and how much more ROI, return on the investment, not only in people, but in the economic value of helping people bring their voices into the world.
0: Very good advice. Mm -hmm. If you were to give advice to yourself, let's say 15, 20 years ago, what would that be?
1: I've been a good friend to myself I have to say. (laughs) So some of the good advice that's paid off is stick with it and with all the rejections that I got about you know you can't do this it was like I was ahead of my time is what I got. One company gave Viking Press gave me my first contract to do a book and then they rescinded it Mm. because they said when we saw the bookstore and realized where are we going to put a book about neuroscience in all these books about leadership there's no place for people to find the book and we won't sell it. Well, two years later, all of a sudden now they have a whole shelf with crossovers where it's integrating science with whatever. And so it just, I was, again, being ahead of time. I have to say to myself back then, don't take it to heart. I wonder sometimes if that fear and worry about will this ever happen may have impacted my immune system. I think that way sometimes. And so it's how to be able to weather the nose to find those beautiful little yeses, which I finally did learn how to do, but I think I got sometimes worn in the, uh, in the game. If we look at all companies as
0: instruments of change, really, what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now?
1: What I've noticed happens when change is that it causes uncertainty. In companies and so leaders who thought they knew where the company was going all of a sudden now are confused and they then bring their anxiety into the company in some ways and people pick it up and now you have more confusion in the company. There are methodologies that we're creating in our world of conversational intelligence that help take the confusion out of changing strategy and changing vision and giving people a way to connect during those times better than the anxious way that a lot of times you have many people giving messages, do this, don't do this, and then people become Mm. confused. And that confusion takes away their ability to think in new ways innovatively. So I would love people to study more about the science of healthy conversations and unhealthy so that they can start to spot the patterns that are leading them down a path of stress or confusion or silos and all the things that we talk about. Someone's taking over, there's a space, and they put their body in every space that's available. you know. And so to notice what are the behaviors and to make it OK to know that, because sometimes we have an intention to help, and we don't. I've had leaders that take over their relationships with all their people and put them in the hospital from not giving their people a chance to be self-expressed. So realize the solutions for change are in the people that are in your company. Create the space for them to be part of those important conversations. and. Everything will change. Everything will change.
0: I was just reflecting now on the fact that for you and your family, knowing and studying everything you have around this, how has that affected your way of living within the family?
1: It's fascinating that you should say that because my husband is now the president of the company. So he he does a lot, everything, the legal, you name it, the troubleshooting and financial and so forth. And so for us, We've had to learn to adjust our roles with each other. Both We live here, we're 24-7. I mean, hes I see him all the time. So that's been a fascinating adjustment. And I'm glad that he's with us and he's doing what he's doing. And he's been so helpful. And I'm giving him more all the time now that I see he loves to do it and that he does a good job. So that's one thing. I want to have more time with my family. I have young grandchildren now. And so all the... And when I'm gone too much, then I don't get to see them. I figured I have, I want to live till I'm 100. That's a goal. And and I want to spend the next 30 years continuing to research and share this work and have time to do the things that will make me happy. Happy's important. Happy's good. (laughs) (laughs) How do you define happy? For me, it's when I'm with people that challenge me, help me think in new ways, are open to experiment and have fun in ways that are not necessarily traditional, then I love it. And my friend who's a doctor, she became a doctor at 50. She went to Yale and she said, I know I've been in marketing all my life, but I want to be a doctor now. And the head at Yale said, how old are you? And she said, do you realize what you're saying? And, And I love that. So I want to be able to have those moments too in my life where I continue to surprise myself and the people that are around me, that there's still so much more to do at this age. Mm.
0: And this is something that I've noticed uh, mainly in Europe, where I reside, that so many people between 40, 55, 60 and so on are worried about, you know, how do they stay relevant, even if you you have the whole life to learn things, but how do you learn and relearn and add value in this kind of changing environment and so on? Is there any reflection or piece of advice that you...
1: I'll share what I've done because it continues to carry me forward with um, fuel. For much more than even I thought it was possible. I find an area that I'm really curious at and I start to research what other people are thinking. So I become curious about other people's ideas to see if there is a straight line story or multiple line story where it could be this way, this way, or this way, and have conversations with people about what I love. I can't help but go to a dinner or something and start to blab about my most recent article that I read that and say, what do you think and what do you know and so forth. So the role model in my family for that was one of my uncles. He unfortunately was the last of four brothers. My father was one. He was a doctor and he just passed away, which is very sad for all of us because he was kind of the one last generation person alive. But at the age of 92, he was still part of a book club with other people his age, all had money to retire if they wanted to, but who wanted to keep their brains vital. And he knew some of the things about neuroscience and the brain that I was talking about. And he said he couldn't wait every time to go there. So I hope that I and other people that I love and, and interact with will have those kinds of interests because they're as good as those people that like to run a marathon. This is an intellectual marathon that keeps us alive and vital and curious.
0: Wonderful. I would like to
1: be part of a club like that. (laughs) I've always thought about having a salon in our house in Connecticut. We have a third floor that held 30 people. And we've had people come and we rent chairs. And we all talk about what's on our minds and the new things that we want to learn and challenge each other. And I think that that's a beautiful thing to keep doing. One small story. When I was 16, my parents had a party. And I was able to attend the party. It's the first time I drank scotch, and I'll never do that again. I don't drink anyway. But anyway, there was a woman who was crying in our dining room by herself. And I came in to see what was happening. What's wrong, I said. And she said, it's all over. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, I'm 40 years old. I said, but that's young. She said, no, I've done everything that I can do. And I feel like there's nothing in front of me. And I said, oh, my goodness, you have a whole life ahead of you to do all these wonderful things, because you and I are now talking about what do we do later. And she said, I I can't see anything that is in front of me anymore. And the woman hung herself two days later.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And she shared with me, and I was left with that horrible memory. I still see what she looked like. I still see her body sitting up like this and trying to express help. And I didn't understand what that meant. I thought maybe she had been drinking, and she got a little, you know, yeah, especially it's in that kind of an environment. Environment, yeah. And so that stayed with me for a long time. And I've said, we say that 40 is, you know, you've reached your peak or 50 and you should stop working at 55 or whatever it is. And I said, I, I saw that that image for me is no, that's not me. Many times in my life I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do that. And then I'd watch my hand and say, what is that that I want to do? And those were my ways of breaking from the things I saw around me that I didn't feel was the life that I wanted to live, nor share with my children, or my grandchildren for that matter.
0: And uh, just to finish off on a very large scale, (laughs) what do you think that the world actually
1: needs most at this time? The world needs love, without even question, that we need to understand. I had been part of a project, I was only part of it for a short time, so I can't tell you the whole story of how it ended, but there was a capturing of resources, what resources lived in every country. And then the dialogue was about, do I need which resources to help us grow? And do they need which resources that I have to help them grow? So it was a sharing before money, a bartering of our best assets to help us grow. And that's what I wish the future would become, that the conversation would shift to, how can I support you? How can you support me? That is called compassionate conversations, compassionate listening. It actually happens in a part of the brain that opens up more of this prefrontal cortex where new ideas about the future and foresight live. But we can't access that until we give up the fear of loss and focus on the gain of sharing. And so that would be, I hope that I'm alive when that strategy politically is beginning to be more experimented with and successes, because there are bound to be successes. And I want to be here to see them. And so imagine the whole world, our chemistry shifts towards helping. What products do I have that if put with your products could form something new that the world needs? That's the mentality I wanna be around to experience.
0: And the developments of communities and tribes and all that in different senses that is evolving right now, I think is really interesting. You're a wonderful person and I respect very much everything you've shared and uh, it's definitely gonna be a great source of inspiration for the listeners. Mm. And um, to find out more about your work, people can head to creatingwe.com,
1: right? We have two websites. One is okay. Creating We, which is where we work with leaders and teams and whole organizations. We do what's called powered by conversational intelligence. So bringing that into a company, you can have whatever challenges the company has, but the way people talk about them, elevate them to higher levels of insight and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's my dream. If there's anybody that's looking for a match, just like we were talking about, To find the happy place where that can happen is what I get excited about. And then we have conversationalintelligence.com, which is where we talk more about the book. And some of my speaking engagements are right there. So if people want to watch a video or read something, read our blogs, there's tons of things for them to learn more about. Okay,
0: wonderful. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And I also truly appreciate if you share this episode with the people you know would benefit from hearing it. Thanks for listening and until next time, uh, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao.